Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, as always, and today I'm joined by Dr. Vivica Otessen. She is a criminologist with an interest in how nature and nurture combined create human behavior, and she has a popular science blog, Biosocial, where she comments on new scientific findings and literature relevant to her subject. And so, let's start the interview, Dr. Otessen. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's an honor to be invited. Thank you. Okay, great. So, I mean, it's interesting that you study criminal behavior from an evolutionary perspective. So, what would, how, how do you approach it, criminal behavior from this perspective? Well, there's this um, quote from my dear friend and colleague in evolutionary psychology, Professor Steven Pinker, that I find summarizes exactly how I do this, what I'm doing. It's a quote from uh, The Blank Slate which I'm sure most of your viewers have, uh, have, have read. It's a brilliant book. And there he says that the first step in understanding violence is to set aside our abhorrence for it long enough to examine why it can sometimes pay off in personal and evolutionary terms. And that's what I do because yeah, I study mostly then um, uh, uh, physical violence and severe physical violence. Homicide is what I have my uh, PhD in. And of course, there's a natural abhorrence to it. And I think many people, uh, and not just the general public, but I think also scholars, academics, uh, the abhorrence of violence uh, can, can, can muddy a clear view of what it actually is about. Um, and throughout the years I was a student, I was reading all the available theories that exist on criminal behavior, antisocial behavior, criminalized behavior, and of all the theoretical approaches that gave a most nuanced and sober, and what I, from what I could tell, an accurate view of what violence actually is all about, is the evolutionary psychological approach. Mm -hmm. But but why specifically? I mean, what are the kinds of insights that we get from an evolutionary perspective that we wouldn't get from other approaches? Well, for instance, to, to, to narrow it down to then homicide research, um, since the mid-1950s, homicide has been studied uh, systematically. One is trying in the field in the scientific field of homicide research, one is trying to identify what we call meaningful homicide categories. Um, what we're trying to do is to see if, can we take our data on homicide, put it into meaningful categories so that there appears some sort of pattern, pattern in what, what can create a vulnerability for perpetrating homicide, be, uh, being a victim of homicide, what are the contexts it happens in? And if we find meaningful categories, what actually happens is that there appears a pattern in these risk factors, and then we can use them, uh, hopefully, uh, to inform on preventive measures. Now, there were two large names within homicide research that have, for instance, one of the categories they've been uh, researching is uh, child homicide, uh, Alder and Polk. They are two Australian homicide researchers. And in one of their publications from 2001, 
they were claiming that there are so many different contexts that child homicide occurs in. You have men doing it, you have women doing it, um, you've got newborns being killed, you've got 12-year-olds being killed, and they just couldn't find any pattern to it. And so they just concluded in 2001 that we probably will never have any theory of homicide, of why it happens and how therefore them to prevent it, uh, because it's, it's just a mass of data here. And I was quite shocked to read this in 2001 because already since the late 90s, I'd been reading what is more or less my Bible, which is the book Homicide by uh, Martin Daly and his late wife, Margot Wilson, from 1988. Now, since 1988, they showed us that if you can set aside your abhorrence long enough to examine why homicide and the different types of homicide actually can pay off in in evolutionary terms, you can actually um, separate the big category child homicide into subcategories. And you can use then this uh, paradigm of selection thinking where you not only have the meta theory of evolutionary theory, but you have also what's called mid-level theory, which is, um, which is authored by evolutionary biologists such as uh, Richard Alexander, William Hamilton, Robert Trivers, on where you are more or less likely to get reproductive conflicts. And if you start off with reproductive conflicts, like Daly and uh, Wilson then did, is you can take child homicide, separate uh, maternal perpetrators from paternal perpetrators, uh, genetic parents from step-parents, and what I've been working mostly on in, uh, in, uh, in my both theoretical and also empirical work is separating those uh, with psychopathology from those without psychopathology. And then you finally will actually get a nuanced picture uh, that shows that it's quite shocking that two of the biggest names in homicide research, also in child homicide research, concluded in 2001, after this publication in 1988, that, oh no, we're never going to be able to find meaningful categories and forget theory, it's all a mess. Um, so what you get from using this perspective is actually a potential to understand the underpinning psychology uh, and identify risk factors you otherwise wouldn't find, for instance, the risk of living in a step-parental uh, household, and you can then use that to um, work towards preventing these horrific, abhorrent, uh, and also tragic incidents. Mm -hmm. But are some of these uh, criminal behaviors adaptations themselves? I mean, are they in any way part of our evolved repertoire? Are they uh, evolved strategies that people resort to to solve conflict, for example? Um, well, there's an I want to say an ongoing discussion, but it's it's been far too many years since you've had any like really theoretical discussion on this. Now, Daly and Wilson were the first to suggest uh, that there might be evolved psychological mechanisms underpinning homicide perpetration. However, they were very, very clear on that those psychological mechanisms with regards to child homicide those mechanisms were in place. They had an origin and a function to make sure that the individual didn't invest too heavily in the wrong children. 
So if you are a mother in a hunter-gatherer society and you have a two-year-old and you are still breastfeeding that two-year-old, uh, you won't be able to take care of that two-year-old and also a newborn. So they predicted, um, Delian uh, Wilson predicted that you will have an increased likelihood for that neonate, the newborn, to be killed, yes, but there isn't any specific psychological mechanism that will make a woman homicidal as much as that uh, the mechanisms that will make her care more, be more fond of, invest more heavily in the older of the two siblings than the younger one. Now, they argued for very many categories and, and spent most time in arguing when, with regards to child homicide that there weren't any specific psychological mechanisms that will make you homicidal as much as invest less um, and, and get certain feelings that on, on, on a larger scale, on a larger scale of the behaviors you could get, some of them will be lethal behaviors. Whereas a few years later, uh, in publications from 2008, 2005, 2011, so that was quite a gap in the development of theory on homicide from an evolutionary standpoint, uh, you had uh, Joshua Dunkley and David Buss. David Buss is very known in the field of evolutionary psychology and together with uh, Joshua Dunkley, they started exploring maybe there are, like you were suggesting in your question, specific mechanisms, and you call them then adaptations, that make us homicidal. And they argue that yes, there are, because one thing is to have this two-year-old that you've already invested that much in and who is closer to reaching reproductive maturity, closer to reaching that age where you don't have to invest as heavily as a woman versus the newborn. But just neglecting that newborn, um, for instance, like if you, if, you, if you don't have a homicidal mechanism towards that newborn, if you're just neglecting it, it will, it will drag out. You will lose some resources, whether that is sleep, babysitting, breastfeeding, whatever, you will be losing uh, finite and limited resources. So if there was women who had a mechanism that specifically created homicidal behavior, they would be cutting off a loss of investment much sooner than if you just had psychological mechanisms that led to neglect and abuse and impatience and that sort of thing, rather than just cutting it off. Um, so they've argued that there are specific mechanisms, but this is, I don't know if I have to point out the obvious, it's, it's very hard to conclude, uh, but what we need to do and what, what I've spent some time on is arguing that if it's this sort of mechanism, you'll have to, you would see these sort of signs and if, if there are specific homicidal mechanisms, you will more often get so and so and so. Um, but there needs to be more work done, and uh, thankfully I've been in a position to, to in some texts of uh, late, uh, dabble with, to explore uh, the areas that still need developing within um, the theory uh, uh, on uh, homicide perpetration from an evolutionary point of view, because there's, a, there's been a gap between the work of uh, Daly and Wilson and then the work of uh, Dunkley and Buss, and now there is another gap, and I'm... I'm ambitious enough to, to hope to maybe contribute towards this. 
Yeah, but has there been enough cross-cultural studies? I mean, because, for example, when we're talking about Martin Daly and Margot Wilson, if I remember correctly, in their book, they focus mostly on specific areas in North America. So uh, I was wondering if there's been also studies done on, for example, more traditional and together societies and across the globe. Uh, well, the research on hunter-gatherer societies from an evolutionary approach, um, that has been uh, explored quite well by Daly and Wilson in that book, Homicide. Uh, they have two chapters on child homicide, and uh, the first of those two chapters, they do explore these traditional hunter-gatherer societies and, uh, and, and, and get confirmation, they get empirical support for their predictions there. And then, yes, they absolutely, they focused on Canadian samples, and uh, uh, from the United States. Uh, later, you've had a, a brilliant couple, uh, Todd Shackelford and his wife Viviana Weeks Shackelford. They've also been performing uh, homicide research on newer data in uh, the States. Uh, you, have, uh, other, um, you have a publication by Stone et al. and Harris et al who also, uh, Harris et al, I believe, was in Canada, and Stone et al was in, uh, I think they used a forensic unit in the States, again, North America, but Dalian Wilson also looked at um, England and Wales, um, but that was them from the 80s, I believe the 70s and 80s, uh, maybe early 90s in their data, and then you have one publication from Italy, you have some publications um, that are problematic, and I'll get to why, uh, problematic publications from Sweden. Now, those Swedish studies are problematic because us, as someone who is well-versed in evolutionary psychology um, and the uh, evolutionary psychological understandings of homicide, I... Um, I find the theoretical understanding lacking of these. Uh, they, they are, I believe they are zoologists, these Swedes, and they were mostly uh, focused on um, stepfathers and whether or not stepfathers are overrepresented among child homicide offenders in Sweden. Now, in the first publication they had on this, they found that um, stepfathers were not overrepresented. And they did not, they weren't criticizing the theoretical foundation because the theoretical foundation for suggesting, predicting that stepfathers will be overrepresented, that is um, maybe the part of the theoretical approach to, uh, to homicide that has been most developed by evolutionary psychological perspectives. So it was, it was a bit, it was a bit odd, I'm gonna be frank, it was odd that they weren't exploring what's wrong with the theoretical foundation, that they were just looking at the empirical data instead. Now, they did the calculations and publish, uh, published that there wasn't an overrepresentation, and they did it with an attitude, an air of, and now we have disproved it completely. Despite all these other publications that I've mentioned, all of them show, and one of, uh, and two of these publications even show an overrepresentation of stepmothers. 
Um, so what Daly and Wilson did then in a publication in 2001, I believe their publication was, was that they had asked for the raw data from the Swedish scientists, recalculated, and found that step parents, stepfathers indeed are overrepresented in Sweden as well. There's come uh, two or three publications from these Swedish uh, uh, authors since then, but as someone who is well versed, and I've done my PhD in this, and not just testing uh, already known predictions, but also seeing what predictions I could develop using uh, the paradigm of selection thinking, I see them missing. Uh, evolutionary psychology is, it's a, it's a difficult exercise. You can't just thumb through the blank slate. You, you have to do more, more groundwork than that. Um, and I, I see them missing some points. For instance, they also seem to believe that if, if stepfathers are supposed to be overrepresented or predicted, expected to be overrepresented, uh, they should be that in like large, in large numbers. But as um, uh, Daly and Wilson themselves have argued strongly for, and also Dunkley and Bush argue strongly for, is that whether or not those type of psychological mechanisms are uh, manifested in homicidal behavior uh, depends first on a reproductive conflict being triggered, and then that uh, homicidal response is actually available to the individual. And in Sweden, uh, the pseudo-investment of a stepfather is very little compared to what it was, say, in Chicago in the 70s. In Sweden, when, in the data they were using there, um, a genetic father would, would still have to invest heavily in his children, despite the being divorced and despite the, the mother remarrying. Whereas this was not the case in USA, Chicago, 1970s, then a genetic father wouldn't necessarily have a social and financial responsibility if there was a stepfather that came into the picture. And because you had these hunter-gatherer data, you had Northern America, you had one study in Italy, you had these Swedes that I believed hadn't really, they didn't have a specific enough understanding of evolutionary psychological approaches to this, I decided to test these predictions in Norway. And that is the list of countries where you've tested these predictions um, with great success every time it's been tested, apart from in Sweden, which is the only publications that I've read where I get this feeling they haven't really got an accurate understanding. Um, and so therefore I found it very important to find another country, just like Sweden, Norway is so egalitarian, you've got gender equality, um, you, we haven't, it, it's been illegal to do physical disciplining of children since the late 70s, early 80s, you've got abortion that is safe and legal, and birth control, you've got, all these measures uh, that will create such a different environment for uh, man and woman's parental psychology. Um, so I really wanted to test it in, in Norway, in this sort of society, uh, and, and, and see what happened.
Yeah, but but I mean, just to be fair, apart from the fact that this kind of research is very controversial, I guess that another issue is that we wouldn't get the same kind of rigorous data from all all kinds of countries and societies. I mean, probably in different countries, they don't keep uh, records uh, in the same rigorous way or I mean, taking into account the same factors or they don't classify the data the same way. So that's another complication, probably. This is absolutely a complication. Um, uh, or you can say a, a, a challenge, at least. Now, uh, in Norway, uh, it's a transparent society to the extent of that uh, there's a high clearance rate for homicides and uh, they are discovered and registered. Um, but I got the problem in 2010 after I had um, after I had uh, done three years of research and I was ready to publish my uh, data on child homicide in, in Norway in 2010 um, where I was working higher up in the system um, uh, was uh, they got word of that I was using evolutionary psychology and so I wasn't allowed to publish the results now, I don't know if that is a problem in any other country, but it was a problem in, in Norway. And so I had to find a new place of employment and restart my work in 2012 um, and do my research all over again. Um, it isn't the kind of story that uh, inspires others to, to try. <laughs> it really isn't. It's a horrible story. Um, but maybe if... Uh, what I am hoping is that evolutionary perspectives on homicide research, that it doesn't just die out, but that there, there will be more people coming to the field. Maybe there are some master students who are watching your uh, podcast and who hear, hears of this research and decides to do a PhD where they use evolutionary approaches. For instance, on uh, parental psychology, child homicide, or any other category of uh, homicide, because the incredible work of uh, Dalian Wilson incredible work and which has been followed up really well theoretically uh, by uh, Dunkley and Buss and empirically by the Shackelfords. I, I, I really hope that it can continue. Yeah, and I've had them all on the show, so <laughs> they're all great people. Uh, apart from Margot Wilson, that unfortunately she's already passed away. So, uh, I mean, so uh, let me just ask you, I've asked you earlier if uh, homicide or different kinds of homicidal behavior would be adaptations, but from an evolutionary perspective, do you think that it's best for us to approach each different kind of homicide as a different, as a specific category? Like, for example, if we want to study homicide perpetrated uh, that, that targets uh, acquaintances versus homicide that is done between intimate partners versus homicide that targets children, for example. Do you think that the best way to do it is to approach each of these types of homicide as a different category to understand them from an evolutionary perspective? Absolutely. Um, and this is what Daly and Wilson do in, uh, in, in their book, uh, Homicide, uh, which again, it, it's my Bible. Um, 
they have a chapter on each homicide category and uh, explicitly referring to the selection paradigm, um, they use these mid-level theories uh, to, to find out uh, what is, with a working hypothesis that homicide is an extreme result, behavioral result of reproductive conflicts, they examine what will the reproductive conflict potentially be between a mother and her child? What will a reproductive conflict potentially be between two young men? What will a reproductive conflict potentially be between a man and his uh, soon-to-be ex-wife? So they go in, in every um, uh, dyad you have, relationship dyad, what will the reproductive conflict be between these two parties? Um, that's their starting point. And that was so successful. They have shown in their research uh, that the theoretical work they did around that hypothesis of there being a reproductive conflict between uh, uh, diets of relationships. Um, that's been followed up by, by, uh, by a few others, a select uh, uh, group of uh, researchers and a limited number of uh, publications, but there is potential there. And I'm currently writing a book on homicide, uh, and I'm focusing on domestic homicides um, from a Nordic you know, using Nordic data, uh, specifically Norway, but also the other Nordic countries, to the extent that they have homicide research. But the Nordic countries, Scandinavian countries, have so few homicide that we also have very little research on it. But whatever data is there, I'm going to test these evolutionary understandings and predictions and see what happens in the Nordic countries, what happens with this evolved psychology here in these diets of relationships. Is it, can you say that this is a re, the reproductive conflict as suggested by uh, Daly and Wilson? And is it actually giving the risk factors they suggested? And what other risk factors can I, uh, educated, well-versed in this paradigm, what more can I find that will be specific for the Nordic countries? Mm -hmm. and I will then, like you ask, yes, I will absolutely follow this categorization, um, which is evolutionary informed. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about the Nordic countries because, I mean, they usually are the paradigm of gender equality and progressivism and so on. So do you think that those factors, those sort of political, social factors play a role in levels of homicide? Absolutely. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Dalian Wilson and uh, Dunkley and Buss have been very explicit on, you know, whether the homicidal behavior is, a, is a, an, an extreme result of psychological mechanisms that were going to just create certain feelings, but not necessarily, not necessarily specific behaviors, or the Dunkley-Buss approach, which says that um, there will be specific homicidal mechanisms, uh, regardless it's going to be contingent. It's going to be contingent on the environment of the individual. Um, to what extent a reproductive conflict is in a, a occurs at all, is elicited at all, um, and is that reproductive conflict is is it is it overwhelming or is it just a mild <laughs> my, a mild reproductive conflict or is it an extreme reproductive conflict? And and then what? What solutions does the individual have to solve it? And this is very much contingent on the society. Um, 
when one when women were allowed to control when how often with who if they became mothers you know when they were allowed to plan their family life when they were allowed to you know you've got uh, birth control abortion when it was allowed to have children out of wedlock you know socially religiously financially possible for a woman to have children out of wedlock um, what you have seen then since uh, the mid 1900s like since the 1950s what you've seen is that uh, child homicides for for women living in that sort of society child homicides have uh, have uh, plummeted for maternal perpetrators uh, they have also decreased for men for other reasons but not as 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 severely as uh, the main category of child homicide used to be young women getting children out of wedlock, killing the children the first 24 hours after birth, you know, neonaticide as it was called, and that has plummeted. Um, so in Norway uh, and the other Nordic kind of Scandinavian countries, that's not going to be like the big child homicide category as it was in the States, for instance, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that was the big child homicide category. That isn't that hardly exists in the Nordic countries anymore. Um, and the other things like um, divorce rates will influence uh, intimate partner homicide rates because to what extent when, when we know that the main context in which men perpetrate intimate partner homicide is when the woman initiates leaving the partnership, then the extent that a woman can leave will of course affect the rates. Uh, does she have the social, financial abilities, uh, religious abilities to leave a relationship or not? But then, then on the other hand, you also know that uh, the main context in which women commit intimate partner homicide is when they, their experience is that that's the only way they can leave a relationship alive um, is to kill their abusive partner. So if women are not able to leave um, violent relationships, for instance, um, they can both be killed through the violence or they can end up actually becoming the perpetrator to save their own lives and sometimes also to save the lives of their children. So, you know, what does the society allow for or not uh, absolutely uh, influences homicide rates. And what many people think is that with an evolutionary approach, it's a matter of determinism and we have these psychological mechanisms and we are going to behave in this way or that way regardless. But, but the real exercise in evolutionary psychology isn't necessarily just being well-versed in the paradigm of selection thinking. It's also, it's also to see how will it apply in this specific country, in this specific sample and society, how will these uh, psychological mechanisms, how will they manifest? Mm -hmm. um, that's what that, I think that's like, that's the, with regards to homicide research, that's, that's the forefront right now for evolutionary psychological approaches is to test it in different countries and not just test it by uh, just following uh, the work of Daly and Wilson, but to then see, well, in, you know, how will it manifest in this specific country? Um, that's what I did in my PhD work, um, is to look at specifically in Norway, how will it manifest?
so would you say then that generally speaking higher levels of gender equality correlate with lower levels of intimate partner homicide well again that's going to be contingent because what you then have is um you have both social relationships individuals and professional services who uh are um who are aware of intimate partner violence and can prevent intimate partner violence and and end it before it gets lethal you've got that uh, but you've also got women uh, who can leave relationships and in norway just like in the states just like in australia just like in uk just like in any other country south africa the main context in which intimate partner homicide occurs where the man is the perpetrator is when the woman leaves so in norway we we do have intimate partner homicides you have you have a population of just over five million and over the past 20 years or so 30 years or so you will have had between five or 12 women a year killed by an intimate partner and most often in the context of her leaving uh, rates can be affected, yes, but like I said, you, there will be things in the Norwegian society, in the Scandinavian Nordic societies, that will dampen uh, violence, uh, can also uh, dampen the rates of uh, homicide, but there are also things that actually will increase. So a few years back, uh, in the public debate, people were calling it a paradox uh, that in an egalitarian gender equality society like Norway that you had intimate partner homicide more or less at all um, so then I was a voice in that debate saying that no but as long as you have women leaving relationships you have men experiencing an extreme life crisis and they will have very dark and destructive thoughts and feelings in this life crisis and that can then ultimately uh, it, it, it can manifest itself in homicidal behavior. Um, so the work uh, towards preventing intimate partner homicide in Norway has, uh, has focused very much on, on that we are a gender equality society and women should be able to leave their partners, but kind of forgetting what sort of psychological mechanisms men have uh, that can make them vulnerable towards thinking homicide is a solution to, 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 to this life crisis. And some people might be very offended that I'm talking about violent homicidal men in these terms. Um, but the thing is that you see in Norway that there's also a, a high rate of suicide associated with intimate partner homicide. Um, I think losing focus on that these are men who are struggling uh, with very dark and destructive uh, thoughts and feelings, uh, I think one is missing an opportunity to, to prevent intimate partner homicide. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're talking about men, so are there any important sex differences when it comes to homicide perpetration? Because uh, as far as I know, there are when it comes to, for example, antisocial and criminal behavior in general. I mean, for example, most of people who commit violent behavior, uh, uh, violent uh, criminal behavior are men, right? Yeah, you guys. 
Um, this is true. And this goes back to what sort of um, roles, and I, and I don't mean this in the usual social science sense. Uh, when I say roles, I am meaning physiological roles that men and women had in our evolutionary past. Um, there's work by a late evolutionary psychologist. Um, we're losing all the big ones. I really hope for new recruits to the field of evolutionary psychology and, and specifically then to this area that I'm working with them. I'm really hoping for new recruits here. Um, the late Anne Campbell, magnificent woman, very important work. Uh, she was looking at uh, the, the female psychology of antisocial and criminal behavior. And she has an article, I believe that's from 1999, which is literally called Staying Alive. And that's all you really need to know to understand what was her theoretical point. Well, her theoretical point is, as long as women is the only sex that has gone nine months pregnant, meaning she has to stay alive for those nine months, she also has to just generally be careful because she can't do any, acti uh, any activity. That means that she is risking losing her fetus. So she has to stay alive. Her fetus has to stay alive. And we know from hunter-gatherer societies that these women were breastfeeding for up to four years. <laughs> that's, a, that's a long time, four years. They were literally giving of their own body and literally had to stay alive. So that was their physiological role. Now, I have a very politically incorrect joke. I don't know what your show thinks of incorrect, politically incorrect no, joke. No, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. You're going to get lots of hate mails after this. I'm blushing. I can tell I'm blushing already. This goes down very well with Norwegian biologists. I, I lecture a lot on evolutionary psychology in Norway, and there are certain groups this jokes works with, certain groups not so much. But Norwegian biologists, mostly old men, they think this is a terrific joke because when I ask the audience, whether it's students or professionals in, in different occupations, I ask them, you know, how many years does a woman have to give to, to secure her reproductive uh, success? And the answer is like, it's almost five years. If you've got nine months pregnancy and four years breastfeeding, that's almost like five years. And how much of his life does a man have to give? And this is the horrible joke, it's like five minutes and a shower. <laughs> you laughed, good, excellent. I'm gonna move on very quickly now. <laughs> that is a massive sex difference. That's a, that, that will, of course, that the, the evolutionary selection pressure on the female psychology versus the male psychology. Uh, now, I've just written a chapter, invited by Todd Shackelford to write a chapter on uh, paternal filicide. And in this chapter, I have taken the liberty to really explore uh, the paternal psychology of having to provide and protect his family. And what massive selection pressure that is, because although people have to read Anne Campbell's work, and they're more than welcome to read my work on maternal filicide, where I'm talking about uh, the selection pressure that has actually been on maternal psychology. But I, I'm, 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 I'm very happy uh, to have also been able to uh, really underscore the pressure men have been under to, to, to perform as providers and protectors. And that creates a completely different psychology where you are literally willing to give your life for your family. You're literally giving your life, whether it is in your tribal warfare or, um, or in, in, in uh, going hunting.
with your male friends. They were literally perhaps sacrificing their life. And I don't necessarily mean that they could be killed there and then when they were hunting or in tribal warfare, but any wound you got, any physical wound you got, that could fester before modern medicine. And I don't know if it's, when one focuses on men as antisocial and men as violent, I don't, I haven't seen enough work. And I've been reading this literature since the late 90s, I'm aging myself here, but, but there hasn't been enough focus on, um, I'm going to use the phrase, the sympathetic part of why are men so destructive as, as, as some of them are, some of them are. Because what you, what you also see is that um, with regards to young men who are the most physically violent and antisocial, most criminalized, um, what you see is that you will get an increase in these negative behaviors if they don't have the legal, the legal outlets for social mobility, the legal uh, possibilities for social status uh, and resources, that's when it gets into the antisocial and criminalized behavior. And I think that's an important aspect when we talk about men as the antisocial, violent, criminal, sex. I think the idea of them as providers and that if legal measures aren't available, what then can happen in, in modern societies. But yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I trail off. I, I do that all the time. I'm really sorry about that. But um, yes, there is an, a sex difference. But what I was exploring already as a master's student using, using uh, the paradigm of selection thinking was that you aren't going to get a difference in physical violence just like completely regardless. Again, it's going to be contingent. And if you combine the work that's done on men uh, through like works like the demonic male, for instance, and, and, and uh, Daly and Wilson's work on young male syndrome, and you team it up with uh, Anne Campbell's work on staying alive, and that's what I've been doing in my theoretical work, I've been combining these two perspectives. What you'll also appreciate is that writing women off as some meek and placid sex, that's also completely wrong, because women also had to provide they just had to stay alive while doing it. So women compete, women are antisocial, uh, women are violent. They do these things as well. There's, there's no room for a Victorian view of women using an evolutionary approach. You just have to appreciate that it will not manifest itself in behavior that will threaten her physical well-being or her fetus, but it can threaten the well-being of others. Right. I mean, since we were talking about Martin Daly, another thing that came to mind was that work he did on, uh, I mean, the relationship between levels of perceived economic inequality and homicidal behavior, particularly in young men. But yeah. that that is mostly a case of intrasexual competition, but I'm not sure if that would also translate into higher levels of intimate partner violence and homicide. With an evolutionary approach to understanding the male psyche and the reproductive conflict he can have with an actual partner, a potential partner, a past partner is um, to, to what extent is her value to his reproductive success. How valuable is she 
to his reproductive success. And so if, it, if a man is faced with not being able to replace a given partner with a partner of a similar value, that will increase a risk of psychological mechanisms, feelings, thoughts that may result in homicidal behavior. Um, so if he has life circumstances which are a proxy, a sort of measurement for whether or not he can replace a partner, get a partner, he, he is vulnerable to using um, violent measures to maintain control, gain access. Um, so it will be a it will be a matter of that. What you do see is that, um, for instance, there's research showing that the in association with the, the the males who are living in conditions where uh, you know, social mobility is isn't accessible to them and they have few resources and those few resources that they have they have to protect vigorously you see that those males who are in gangs, for instance, that they very, more often than the men who are not in gangs, they will actually have girlfriends. Uh, they'll have multiple female partners and they will also have offspring. Um, and you also see that in, in British research from 70s, 80s by a late criminologist called uh, David Farrington. He also saw that inmates actually had um, uh, a larger number of children than the, the more law-abiding stratas of the society. Um, they, they, they have mating success, but to what extent they are gaining it and controlling it through violence is, is uncertain because also a man, a man who, who has a well-paid job, he might also feel insecure for, for his personal reasons. So what you have is the second a man is feeling insecure about having exclusive uh, uh, access and having control um, that can trigger that can trigger intimate partner violence and uh, the homicide occurs once she's trying to leave. What you also have is again with regards to the reproductive value the woman has to the man is and uh, this was work again done by Dalian Wilson again amazing amazing both uh, us uh, theoretical work as well as empirical work, just, <laughs> I'm gushing. Um, they also found that, when, I mean, one used to, the literature used to suggest before their work, the literature was suggesting that young women were vulnerable uh, to intimate partner homicide and violence because most likely they are dating young men and, you know, young men, they are awful, they are violent. But that actually, uh, <laughs> that actually wasn't uh, the that actually wasn't the um, triggering mechanism, because what Daly and Wilson explicitly using the paradigm of selection thinking and reproductive uh, conflict and um, what will heighten a reproductive conflict and what will heighten the reproductive value of a woman was an age discrepancy. Look for an age discrepancy between the couple. Uh, because the greater the age discrepancy, the harder it's going to be for the man to, if he loses her, to replace her with an equally young woman. And of course, age is of importance with regards to the reproductive value of a woman because that's a proxy of how many kids will she be able to have. So young women were, according to the work, both, both theoretical and empirical work of uh, Daly and Wilson, they're at an extreme risk if they are with an older partner, not necessarily if they are with a younger partner. 
because in the work of uh, John Archer, and at a complete loss of the reference there, it might be 2003, 2004, but I'm, I'm, oh, I'm really uncertain about that reference, but uh, at least Archer's work shows that with regards to intimate partner violence, um, those diets, those groups that are of the greatest risk of intimate partner violence are young couples, yes, but at the hands of the woman. It's the young woman. Women in the early 20s are actually those who are the most violent towards their partners. Um, so, so huge difference uh, in, in, with regards to intimate partner homicide. Mm-hmm. So I also want to take this opportunity because I'm talking from with someone from Norway <laughs> to ask you more questions about Scandinavia. I don't know if this also connects with intimate partner violence and homicide, but there's that thing called the gender equality paradox, where it seems that in countries that are more gender equal, Uh, we have larger sex differences when it comes to educational and occupational choices and in certain personality traits. So does that translate into those kinds of behaviors as well, like intimate partner violence and homicide? Because, I mean, I was just wondering, uh, because also the explanation people provide for that Uh, Some people say, I mean, it's not a definite answer, but some people say that uh, because in more gender equal countries, basically, we are removing certain social, political and such factors, then biological sex differences tend to get expressed more. So I, I was, I mean, I'm not sure if there's a connection there, but what do you think about that? I can first just say I'm absolutely fascinated by by that gender paradox. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating that uh, that one uh, is resorting to uh, what is assumed to be uh, conservative roles. And now I am using the word roles uh, as one does in social science uh, that doesn't use evolutionary informed uh, perspectives. Yeah, that one one seems to be resorting to it that. Uh, uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know to what extent it actually is true in Norway, because right now um, it is women who are choosing what has um, prior been assumed to be like high-status male occupations. Women are overrepresented in uh, in studies, uh, higher education studies, like psychology and medicine and law and they are having actually to consider what can we do to get more males into these studies but what you also see is that the motivation to choose these occupations is showing uh, a predicted sex difference so when men choose to become doctors they are choosing it as a status occupation with good pay Um, But women, when they are choosing to become doctors, they are doing it as carers. Uh, You actually have this phrase, I I, I don't know if we have an English expression for it, but in Norwegian you actually have literally the word care worker. Care worker. And that that is their motivation to become a doctor. It's not, of course, undeniably the status in becoming a psychologist, a lawyer, a doctor, absolutely, but they aren't, that isn't their soul. They also want to, they want to do good for others. 
in they want to take care of people and, and you also have research showing that um, and I, I don't know if you can trust this research but you've also research showing that uh, you're more likely to survive if you have a female doctor than if you have a male doctor maybe that has something to do with the motivation that doctor is sitting in front of you for I don't know I'm speculating but with regards to violence and homicide no there is still an incredible clear sex difference where you have between five and twelve women being killed by an intimate partner in Norway a year, the past uh, 30 years or so, there's been between, in any given year you'll have five women or you'll have 12 women being killed by an intimate partner a year, whereas you might have one male. Where you have gender equality, <laughs> if you want to use that phrase and use it so wrongly with regards to homicide, but where, if you want to see that the rates are equal, um, what you have to do is you have to go back to Chicago in the 80s where for every hundred women who were killed by a partner, 85 men were killed by a partner. And the sex difference in this was um, because they, that was their opportunity to come out of their relationship alive. The circumstances for women in Chicago in the 80s are not as they are for women in Norway today. Uh, women in Norway today are in a financial and social position to to leave relationships if dissatisfied leave relationships if there is psychological physical sexual violence um, you have health self uh, uh, you have uh, women's shelters you have police being educators on the matters you have courts uh, being sympathetic to 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 intimate partner uh, uh, violence that women have other options um, whereas women in Chicago didn't. So I don't think it is because of any kind of traditional, conventional role that women have that will either increase or decrease intimate partner violence. I think it's genuinely in such life and death situations. I think it is also life and death evolved psychological mechanisms. Whether it's a byproduct or an adaptation, there are still feelings there that, that will ensure that, that you stay alive more than social roles yeah so uh, going back to daily and shackle for another i mean we're always going back to them how wonderful <laughs> they're amazing yeah i'm in mean, shackle for this great i've already had him three times on the show so yeah <laughs> so i mean when it comes to filicide what is the evolutionary rationale for the differences we find between a filicide committed by uh, genetic parents and step parents because uh, I mean does it have something to do with genetic relatedness and the fact that for example step parents wouldn't be investing in offspring that are their own offspring that's exactly what it is again back to then the reproductive conflict what will you have in a caretaker child diet what will the reproductive conflict be um, and for a step-parent, it's, 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 it's so obvious. Uh, one has to remember that even just, even in, in, in historically more current societies than, uh, you know, the, 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 the stereotypical hunter-gatherer society, uh, even historically knew the, the, the financial and social burden a stepchild could have been, could have been. Is, is, is so strong that uh, it's, 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 it's an obvious selection pressure to, to withhold investment, to have feelings. 
that make you withhold investment towards a stepchild versus your own. And uh, the focus, uh, um, the theoretical and empirical focus has mostly been on stepfathers. And that's because in the general population, you have more stepfathers than you'll have stepmothers. But um, as I've been exploring in my work is with regards to how much a woman has to give of her own physical body, like going through pregnancy, breastfeeding, anything you're putting into something that isn't genetically your own child versus your own, that is a massive selection pressure. Uh, that one has become discriminant uh, in, in, in who you invest in and how much as a parent. Um, and so what you also will see then is that in association with uh, there being a difference in the reproductive conflict, there's also then a, a difference in what feelings you have, the feelings that a step parent has versus a genetic parent has. And that again will manifest itself in the difference in motivation with step-parents. Even in Norway today, where the pseudo-parental investment is next to nothing, uh, and it's much more social and symbolic than financially, um, you still have step-parents just, just, just feeling that, that that stepchild is more of a burden than a bonus. In the past, I think maybe like past five years, there's been this expression that's become uh, 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 widespread in Norwegian culture, where you call a stepchild a bonus child and a stepparent a bonus parent, and it's assumed to be a bonus. But while you have this like cultural idea of it being a bonus, and for very many it is, for very many it is, and I always assure my students that for many of you sitting here today at my lecture, many of you here are at the university because you had a stepparent that supported you. Um, but but at the same time you also have all these all these adults who who want to live up to the idea of it being a bonus but are feeling that the stepchild is a burden and what you see in what i saw in my research on child homicide in norway was that it was so clear that the the, the motivation was that the stepchild was a burden and that they were using then the methods that daly and wilson predicted that it's there's physical violence and there's neglect versus a genetic parent who is selected to invest heavily, like you've got the mothers who are uh, selected to, to breastfeed for four years, and you've got men selected to sacrifice their own well-being just to be able to provide and protect for their family, that when they, their motivation, and also in Norway today, in current day Norway, their motivation is, uh, and this might seem a bit odd, but even non-evolutionary psychologists call the motivation altruistic. Altruism is supposed to mean that you're doing so much good for someone else that, that there's a cost to you. So how can you claim that a genetic parent is committing an altruistic homicide? Well, that is because these parents are in a desperate life crisis, whether it's a mother or a father, they are for their sex-specific uh, life circumstances that can elicit crises that make them feel they aren't uh, uh, being good parents, that gives them feelings and thoughts that are homicidal. And they are actually reporting, and this happens in the United States, it's happening in Norway today. Uh, there's a court case going in Norway, as we speak, of a mother who just felt that she wasn't able to perform as a mother. And the best, the best maternal care she could give, and for fathers who are struggling financially, the best paternal care they can give their child is that they all die together. 
and it, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrific. And of course, they are not correct in their assumption that this is the best act they can do as a parent. But in a crisis faced with not being a good parent, old evolved psychological mechanisms are being triggered and the love a genetic parent can feel can backfire. And that's what you're seeing in these suicidal is uh, uh, it, it's backfiring. So in the court case that's going in these days is a mother who was struggling after her partner had uh, left her. Uh, he had entered a new relationship. She was struggling a lot. She was struggling so much with depression. She was getting suicidal thoughts. She was struggling for a whole year. And then finally one, one, one evening she writes four letters saying goodbye, saying sorry. And the next morning she, she, she strangles her two boys, seven and one. Uh, she tries to cut herself, but women are involved to avoid physical danger. So that's why you've got suicide attempts among women, whereas men succeed. They manage to crash that car into the mountain wall, whereas women are using methods that aren't as physically dangerous, like uh, excessive uh, amount of pills, which means that you can, you can revive them, you can save them before they die. And this woman was saved and now she's then being confronted in court with having killed her two sons. And this is a massive difference between genetic and uh, step parents uh, is, is in what feelings are eliciting uh, a, a manifestation of different behaviors and motivations. Genetic parents much more often altruistic and they will then choose methods that to the extent possible, to the extent possible, will limit the, the anxiety and pain that the child will feel. Whereas a step-parent uh, will just, you know, have a, throughout a week, throughout a month, throughout a year, just experience this child as a burden, be impatient, and is therefore vulnerable to lashing out towards this child. I have in my sample from Norway, I have, uh, despite physical violence being illegal in Norway, I have one genetic father that was actually convicted for, 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 uh, for what he did, he, he, he crushed the skull of his daughter that was just a few months old, crushed it against uh, the wall, uh, ribs were broken, thigh bones broken, probably because he had been shaking her, it's a typical thing that parents do, but again, most often step-parents or young single parents. Um, but he said in court that he didn't believe the child was his. He'd been separated from the mother when she was, uh, when she got pregnant. They got back together again after the pregnancy and after the child's birth. He didn't believe the child was his. And so he was, he didn't have those paternal feelings towards that child. It ended up with this. They took a DNA test. He actually was the father. It doesn't really have any bearing on how grotesque that case is, but it just shows, it shows the, 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 the the immense power, the overwhelming power these feelings have. But even in a society like Norway, where we try to introduce concepts like step relationships are a bonus in your life, evolution has happened. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, I hope what I'm going to say makes sense, but I, I was just thinking about many different things at the same time. 
So, I mean, could it be that uh, because in modern industrialized societies uh, it is more the case that we have the so-called nuclear family with the mother, the father and the children. And I, I mean, because people move around a lot, we don't usually have the grandparents together and other people because, I mean, they usually live apart. But during a revolutionary history, we had a lot of cooperative breathing, particularly maternal grandmothers played a big role there and other people from the family and the acquaintances. So could it be that this uh, effect that we get, this connection between being a step-parent and being more at risk of committing filicide and other kinds of child violence, could it be more of, of a thing or could it be a bigger effect in modern industrialized societies than in more traditional societies? Because in traditional societies, men wouldn't need to invest as much in the, in the offspring of women who they were partnered with even even if the children were not their own? I mean, does this make sense in any way? I, I don't know if I misunderstood the, the absolute last bit. I, I, I really want to answer your, uh, I, I have thoughts on this. Um, uh, but the last bit you said, did you say that uh, stepfathers wouldn't have to invest back in traditional society? Uh, would, probably wouldn't have to invest as much as they have in modern industrialized societies because we have more cooperative breathing. Yeah, I think I think I understand. Uh, no, he would still be a stepfather would still be uh, the main protector and provider. And, uh, and unless there were uncles that were heavily investing, but these uncles would have their own children. Um, so what what Daly and Wilson found when they were looking at hunter gatherer societies for the book homicide uh, when they go through the ethnographic records is they have examples of women who had children from previous relationships when they found a new partner there are records saying that the then would-be stepfather demanded that child has to be killed okay so that's pretty shocking you don't have that you, you not even in Chicago in the 70s would you have that but uh, but yeah no they the, yeah so that's that's pretty severe um, and then back to the whole allo parents, etc. Yeah, I'm. I mean, since I started uh, uh, researching homicide in Norway, I've been um, uh, be because because no one else researches homicide. Uh, there's there's been a couple who have dabbled a bit, but uh, there's there's no like real like homicide research environment. I've been invited by media. Uh, due to my expertise, like maybe like twice a month since 2008. And I'm always asked, what can you do to prevent homicides? And I'm always saying that even though you have uh, professional organizations like the women's shelters and the police and general practitioners and all of these people who are confronted after a homicide happens and why, why didn't you prevent it? Why didn't you do your job? They're always always being blamed whenever a homicide happens. I want to bring in the close relationships, and it isn't. It can be. It can be. It can be people you are genetically related to, but also it can be co-workers. It can also be 
uh, your mates, your friends, your besties, that, that we have to be there for each other when we're going through life crises, like through a breakup, through, through financial burdens, through our depressions, that we need to come together. And, and, and I'm, probably I am thinking in these terms to prevent homicide uh, due to uh, being an evolutionary psychologist, being so, uh, you know, due to all my readings of that, it takes a village. It literally does. It isn't just a poetic phrase. It, it literally does. Because you see like single mothers are... Uh, at an increased risk of committing child homicide and 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 uh, for being violent towards their children and it, it takes so much to be a parent today yes but even more so back in evolutionary history that having a network would be a proxy to your success and in in modern societies where we're sitting in, you know, you're sitting alone in your apartments, you don't have the day-to-day -day experience of being part of that village. And I think it leaves us humans very, very vulnerable. And it also makes me very skeptical to, to professionalizing the help you're supposed to get when you're struggling. If you are struggling with a life crisis or any mental issues, you're always encouraged to seek like professional help. But then in all these years, I've been using my voice to say, yeah, but we can also get by with a little help from our friends. And it's not just poetic. I think it's, I think it's based in, a, in an accurate, valid understanding of, of uh, human nature. Now, with regards to grandparents, there was also something you mentioned. We might not be living with them, but even in, even in such a professionalized society like Norway, where you do have a nuclear family and everyone is supposed to take care of, uh, of themselves on their own, very, very extreme individualized society, where one of the things that we believe is most Norwegian, what we take most pride in, is our ability to be independent. Um, you actually see that Norwegian uh, grandparents are on... Um, Oh God, what does it put? Oh, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't spoken about this in English. I've only been writing about it in Norwegian. But we're, at, uh, we're on the top of the list. That would have to be the weird way to say it. We're on top of the list of how much time grandparents are actually spending with their grandchildren. Oh, really? I was surprised. Uh, stereotypically, stereotypically, I was expecting um, Italy, Greece, Spain. You know, Portugal. Yes. <laughs> I honestly, I was. I was not expecting such an individualized society as Norway to have the grandparents on 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 top like that, uh, and and I don't know why. It could be. It, it shouldn't be finances and it shouldn't be health. Certainly shouldn't be health because again, stereotypically, I'm I'm assuming that people from those countries have a better diet than us and more sunshine than us and more of a will to live than us. <laughs> better health. Hey, it's hard. It's hard to, to carry on with a will to live in Nordic countries. It really is due to weather. Although, I mean, we're doing fine. We're doing great. But the weather, the weather, man. Well, could that be a reason why you have uh, relatively high levels of suicide? I don't know if that's true for Norway. I think we... Uh, but at least in Sweden, it seems that the suicide rates are relatively high, right? That's, that's new to me. I, but, but I do know. I do know about the Finns. Okay. The Finnish, they have higher rates. 
they have also somewhat higher rates with regards to um, child homicide, I know, as well. Um, and I also know that no one knows, no one knows why this is the case with the Finns. But I think the Norwegian suicide rates are as you... Because they are, they are things like suicide rates and uh, and uh, severe psych, severe psych, psychiatric disorders is rather invariable between societies, and so you also see that uh, homicides associated homicides associated with suicide and and severe psychiatric disorders. And then I'm thinking like uh, schizophrenic episodes of uh, of um, uh, psychoses. Those are rather invariant between societies. Which is why uh, one of my predictions, one of my evolutionary informed predictions in my work is that uh, you actually will have a, a higher percentage, not number, but percentage of these homicides in, in Norway. And that they will have very different risk factors than those without psychopathology. Um, but no, I didn't know that Norway had high risks of uh, suicide. I know we have about 600 a year in a population of just over 5 million. And I know that uh, more than half of them are men, and I know that uh, and I know that young men are in particular risk. That's what I know. Well, I mean, this is what I read. I'm not sure if the source is good or not, but at least I've read, I've read many times people when they talk about the places in the world where people commit suicide the most. They mentioned a lot Scandinavia, but I mean, it could be specific. It could be specific countries, and then also Japan, of course. But yeah, um, which is again uh, the uh, the uh, pressures, the amount of pressures that one has in in work life there. Um, the thing is, though, that um, I think, just like I have stereotypes of southern parts of Europe. Uh, people might also have some stereotypes of, of Norwegian countries and think that yeah. that all the countries are going to be similar, that right. we're placed geographically in the same place on the globe uh, and that we are, we are much more developed in our welfare systems and much more developed with regards to gender equality than, than globally. And we are, we are a natural experiment that things can get a bit fuzzy there. But, but I know definitely the Finns and also that nobody knows why. Um, it can't just be weather, uh, but it can also be alcohol, that there's a different culture for alcohol there, just like also, and this, it sounds stereotypical, uh, but the Finns do have a different, the Finns have, I don't know if, if, if it reached you guys, but there was a few years back, a great rave, rave interest of the Scandinavian culture, and the rest of the world picked up on this Danish world called Hygge. Have you heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To to you know to really like enjoy yourself and and uh, and uh, you know eat good food, turn up the heating, wear warm woolly clothes, light candles, that sort of thing. Um, and in Sweden, the word like their word was jamföra, which means you have to compare. You have to compare your situation to others. Um, and I don't think the Norwegians had one, which says something about how bland we are. But the Finns had a specific word, which I'm, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but they had a specific word for sitting alone in your underwear, drinking. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, 
it might be it might be something to do with culture but yeah so i know i know they are particular and and along with it because like i said with regards to child homicide um genetic parents if a genetic parent is suicidal there is a risk to them due to evolved strong evolved feelings of wanting to invest and and having some sort of sense of proprietoriness towards your child and you need back in the stereotypical stone ages but even just historically in the 18th centuries in most countries all over the world you would have to have insanely strong feelings towards your child to invest the little you had a sense of proprietoriness towards that child to invest so even in norway today if you get suicidal as a parent you will be making plans for your child and those plans might include uh, taking the dearest thing you have in your life with you believing that that is the best care you can can give and it's very hard to communicate this i i sometimes i'm in i'm in courts as an expert witness in addition to media in addition to lecturing on this and for for parents who have not been in a desperate desperate life crisis with a with a with a darkness that can come with that it's very hard to understand that this should be a loving act but there are also parents out there who can report that yeah they they had those feelings and 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 thoughts so if you have a country with high suicide rates you might actually also get uh that sort of filicides as an association which is something i predicted for norway and something that i also uh got empirical support for and also because it's their life situation and their life crises uh that's eliciting uh, the suicidal thoughts and that they and you've got these suicidal thoughts at the same time as you love your child and you want to care for your child and you worry for your child that's why also in these homicides as i predicted and i got confirmed in the data is that you'll have uh, you'll have more victims whereas if it's one child that is a reproductive burden to you you'll 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 get rid of that one child but if it's you as a parent and your circumstance and and you are leaving this world yeah i predicted you you you'll want to care for all of your children because it isn't the child that's the problem it's are you a good parent and are you staying around as a good parent um so even in norway today uh it's necessary to use an evolutionary psychological understanding and to 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 like my dear friend steve says to to set aside your abhorrence cuz cuz uh, don't get me wrong uh, it's 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 very dark to to work on this topic it's 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 a strain but one has to set aside one's abhorrence for it long enough just a window where you work with theory and the empirical data to examine why it could pay off in in evolutionary terms yeah so before i ask my next question let me just say that i was trying to, <laughs> i was about to make a compliment to norwegian people and i was about to say <laughs> that i like sidle and hang up come on you're <laughs> looking nice Yeah but uh, yeah but I, I was about to say that I like I was about to say that I like Lars von Trier's movies but then it came to my mind that he's Danish and not Norwegian <laughs> so <laughs> and uh, and then there's Ingmar Bergman but he's Swedish so I mean <laughs> 
<laughs> Let's not go that way. <laughs> find something from Norway that's likable. Um, well, I, 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 I don't know. You're, you're, the other people you interview, are they as informal as I am? Uh, it depends. It depends. I, I, I think it depends on each each person's personality. So oh, I, I mean, my, my, my longest interview with Lida Cosmides it was very informal. So okay, yeah. good. Well, that's something you can say about Norwegians is that uh, some of us are very informal. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, I was trying to, <laughs> to remember some Norwegian director or something like that, but uh, <laughs> I can't, to be honest. Uh, sorry. We're very <laughs> blonde. We're, we're, we're insignificant. Uh, no, that's that's probably not true. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, talking specifically about neo side. Is there something specific about it? I, I mean, why is it that, uh, or do we have to understand it from an evolutionary perspective as separate from filicide in general? Well, here's the thing. Uh, in the ethnographic records that Daly and Wilson went through, uh, they found neonaticides, but they didn't find those other ones. Uh, they did with regards to these, uh, these uh, stepfathers that came into the woman's life uh, after she already had a child from a previous uh, relationship. And they would then demand that this child got killed because they did not want to invest in a child that wasn't their own. Uh, but otherwise, what they were finding in the ethnographic records was um, uh, was neonaticides that when as, as soon as the woman gave birth, uh, she would she would leave it. She wouldn't necessarily actively kill it as much as just leave it, and through neglect, obviously, it wouldn't survive for many hours. And uh, whether they did it alone or when they did it with other females uh, in their tribe, um, but but that's what they did. You, they don't list other filicides. And then you have uh, authors such as uh, um, the brilliant Sarah Blafahadi, uh, a primatologist, uh, who has suggested, uh, as has a uh, anthropologist, a social anthropologist who does not use an evolutionary perspective. Um, what is her name? Uh, everyone has to forgive me here and just do different attempts at Googling this, but. I think it's Schlepper Hughes, uh, but she, uh, Susan Schlepper Hughes, but she did um, uh, her studies in the 80s in a shanty town in, uh, in Brazil. The, 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 uh, the, the poor areas, the very, very, very like extreme poverty stricken areas of uh, Brazil. And so these two women, uh, independent of each other's work, I'm the one who's like, found them and put them together in, in my own theoretical work, um, is that in, in a society where a woman um, with, without birth control, without abortion, where her way of doing family planning is, is to not invest in her children, she will do it as soon as possible and by the measures that she can. Now, in hunter-gatherer societies, you, you were allowed, it, 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 was, it, was, it was your cultural practice that if you couldn't take care of a child, you, you'd set it out and you'd focus on those children you could out of maternal love. 
Now, in the Brazilian shanty towns, you would have women who would, they would, they would evaluate the newborn. Is this a strong, healthy newborn or is it, and they had their own term for it, uh, that the, 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 these were, they were, they were angels, those, those newborns that seemed weak and that they wouldn't necessarily make it. They were called angels and they were set aside and eventually they died through uh, neglect. And both Blaffer Hardy and, and Schlepper Hughes are suggesting that in modern societies where these practices are not allowed, where you're supposed to care for all the children you get, that's when you get societies where both mothers and fathers will physically abuse their children. Hmm. If one is allowed to get rid of those children who can be burdens, and so I don't know if that is an answer to your question. And I, I understand that for many, many of your viewers, this might be very painful. Many of them might object to it. It's very controversial. It's very dark. But I just want to then take the opportunity to tell your audience that there will never, ever, ever be a theoretical approach to understanding violence towards children and child homicide that is pleasant. So it's, all going, it's always going to be horrible. It's always going to be abhorrent. But yeah, if a woman can, if a woman can do family planning, and today we don't have to set children out in the forest in, in, in Norway at least, but we were doing that in Norway up until the 50s, 60s. Then the 60s came with uh, birth control uh, and abortions and uh, the social uh, acceptance of out-of-wedlock children, and you're, you're getting less... Uh, neonaticides, and that's why we, we barely have them. Um, uh, I have a publication specifically on that, how there were no registered incidents in Norway over 20 years, and uh, very similar results from uh, Sweden and Denmark. Um, you don't have incidents where the child has actively been killed. You've had some children who were, who, uh, were dead upon birth being found in public, but it's it's nothing like in other European countries where you, when neonaticide is such a problem that they are preventing it by, by having these safe places that mothers can leave their newborns. Or when you don't have that in, in the United States, then neonaticide is one of the larger homicide categories, uh, filicide categories, uh, the killing of newborns by, um, you know, these young high school girls who are so terrified of being ostracized from the family. Again, back to it takes a village and, and not having a network to help you is a proxy and it does increase risk for child homicide. Um, yeah, these young girls in, in, in uh, the United States, but also in other countries that haven't come as far as uh, the uh, Scandinavian countries with regards to helping mothers be good mothers. Because that's what it's down to. It's helping parents be good parents. And if we're not helping parents be good parents, whether it's the young woman getting a child out of wedlock, or it is a father who's just lost his business and now can't provide for his family. If we're not helping parents be good parents, there will be then, uh, you will get child homicides. Yeah. So I have just two last more general questions to ask. Uh, are there any good enough scientifically validated approaches to prevent homicide? 
Well, there's, there's some words I'm picking up on in your question where my answer has to be, we can't really do experiments, can we? We can't do a lab experiment. Mm-hmm. You're asking for like rigorous, scientific, validated. You'd need a lab experiment for that. And that is um, ethical boards just wouldn't have of it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what you have is natural experiments. What is a natural experiment? That's when you, you just let people go about their business and you see what happens. And I think I've been referring a lot, I can I just to summarize, um, you prevent child homicide by helping parents be good parents. And a part of that is helping women decide when, if, when, how often they become mothers at all. Uh, you have uh, research on why women do have abortions in Norway. And they will list things like, it was too close to my last child. Well, that's a risk factor, isn't it, for both uh, 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 non-lethal and lethal violence towards a child, is that siblings are too close in age. So women are planning using an abortion, whereas back in hunter-gatherer societies or the 1800s of England, they were putting the children out on the streets, causing the creation of Infanticide Act. Uh, to be sympathetic towards the situation women are in if they can't take care of the children. So they were listing too close to another child. They were listing things like, I need to get my education and my uh, a good paid job before I can become a good mother. And therefore they were having abortions while doing the studies and, 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 and getting their jobs. And it's all going back to the evolutionary pressures of what it would take to be a good mother, to, to succeed as a mother. It's still staring uh, feelings um, that manifest then in the behavioral action of having an abortion rather than giving birth to a child you can't take care of. So as, as, as far as you're asking for rigorously scientific proven, no, what you have is associations. You have associations with women's ability to, to plan pregnancies and plan motherhood. Uh, showing them since the 1950s, not just in Norway, not just the Scandinavian countries, but also in Europe, which has also been very helpful with regards to these things, uh, uh, with regards to uh, allowing mothers being uh, good mothers, helping them to be good mothers, uh, seeing them a plummet in those filicides that they uh, commit. Um, to the extent of that one can say that uh, one can prevent suicide, and suicide has also since uh, since the 1950s, also in the Scandinavian countries, you've seen a decrease in suicide, uh, both among mothers and fathers, uh, in countries like Finland and Sweden and Norway and associated, you've also have, have seen a decrease in, uh, in filicides associated with those suicides. You see that countries like Norway that uh, where you have social mobility uh, for young men. Uh, young men have therefore access to legal ways of gaining status and resources, etc. Uh, you have less crime in general in society and along, uh, and along with that you have associated less uh, homicides associated with criminal lifestyles. So you have a natural experiment of associations in one country that you can put up against another country and see the associations in that country. And that is the best answer I can give, is that you don't have the regular scientific proven ways of preventing homicide, but with an accurate theoretical understanding of the psychology underpinning and knowing what associations you should look for, 
you can look for it and that's what I'm doing in my work and all I can say what I can report back from the front is it it works it works yeah so uh, I, I mean and particularly this I guess would be much of an issue even in uh, Scandinavian countries uh, how do you go about trying to convince people, particularly the more left-wing progressivist people, that we should take an evolutionary perspective into account, particularly when we're trying to tackle these kinds of complicated, delicate issues? Well, that's mad hard, isn't it? Like I said earlier, I lost three years of research and my job, and that was then my career down the drain because I had chosen evolutionary psychology uh, to identify risk factors. Uh, risk factors I wouldn't have identified if I hadn't used this theoretical approach and incredibly damaging to my, to my life and my career. Um, but even though it's hard to find a place of employment, um, I am being invited to lecture on it a lot. Media want me to do interviews on it, but I don't dare do interviews in evolutionary psychology because I'm not convinced that the general population of Norway is familiar enough with just the basic principles of evolution. So that's a, that's a, that's a really dangerous topic to try to, you know, give like one-liners and answers on, on, on a topic like homicide and, and explore in evolutionary psychology. I do it with you because you're an educated interviewer and we have a couple of hours, right, to elaborate and you have a certain audience. Um, but, but on occasion, I, 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 I get to communicate these views. Like for two years, I was writing for a newspaper which is so left-wing uh, that it, the newspaper itself is called Class Struggle. And I think that's, uh, that, that, was, that was very progressive of them to, to invite me in specifically, not only because... Uh, uh, they, they knew me as, as, as an active participant in, in social commentary, but also uh, uh, disseminator of uh, popular science and evolutionary approaches. And they, for two years, I got to write on a string of social phenomena with an evolutionary approach, and and it didn't seem to upset anyone. <laughs> no hate mail. Um, but Norway has a long way to go. Norway has a long way to go, and it is—it's very hard with the, It's very hard for me to to find employment, seeing as I've specialized within evolutionary psychology. So Norway is progressive on many things, but not necessarily in academia. Right. Uh, so uh, I mean, but. Uh, just by focusing on socio-cultural perspectives on these issues, what would you say people would be missing about understanding both the behavior and trying to prevent it? How powerful these emotions are. They will be missing out on how overwhelming parental love is, how dangerous it is if someone is a caretaker and doesn't have parental feelings, they will be missing out on how important alloparenting is, how important the proxy of having a social network is, um, and, and just other, and, and then just like plain risk factors. But like the thing is, I can, I can research the risk factors and then I can tell people the risk factors and they will know the risk factors. So they wouldn't be missing out on 
you know, I, I do most of most of my lecturing. Uh, I, I often just skip the evolutionary bit and I just focus on the risk factors bit. But what they would be missing out when you're asking me specifically, what would they be missing out on, like the general public or professionals, those who don't really need evolutionary psychology as such. I think they will be missing out on how powerful feelings are and not just the dark feelings. Uh, but also the, the the loving feelings, and they will be missing out on how important it is to not lose your flock. Uh, we are a very social species, and to be without our social connections. I mean, just thinking over the past year with the the pandemic, um, there being restrictions on how many people you can meet and if you can meet anyone at all. When you have when you have like large uh, cities like, for instance, Norway, uh, here in Oslo, I think about half of us live alone. I, I live alone with my dog, and I don't know what I'd do without my dog this year. And with my social interactions then being very limited and limited to social media, politicians, I think, were not grasping that when, when you are in a crisis, as we all have been, globally we have all been in a crisis, some more than others, and I will not downplay it, some absolutely more than others. But when a human being, an evolved species, a human being is in such a massive, overwhelming crisis as this has been, the thing we absolutely need are these social contacts. So at the worst time in our lives, we've been, we've been robbed of this network. We've, which again is a is a proxy of that. Not only are you in a crisis, but you're in a crisis on your own, and that would not have bode well historically. That has not bode well for the individual to be completely alone in a crisis. And and this is what I'm always trying to communicate with regards to preventing homicide: is that people going through a life crisis, like men losing their ability to provide for their family, or a young man struggling because his only option to gain resources and social status is through illegal actions or a mother who's suffering depression isn't it doesn't feel she's she's being a good mother we really need to come together um, and that's what they'd be missing yeah okay so let's end on that positive note just before we go grim and dark but was it positive no 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 i think it was positive okay so uh but just before we go where can people find you on the internet um <laughs> yeah wow that sounds so scary i don't know if people i want people to find me on the internet that sounds awful uh that doesn't sound safe no i have a twitter account uh, which is Biosocial, which is spelled Norwegian, so uh, Biosocial with two S's, no C. Uh, I also have that blog, which is in, it's in Norwegian, uh, but people can always Google Translate if they want. But more importantly, I'll be having a couple of publications coming out, um, and I will notify on Twitter, and I will notify on, on Facebook. I'm also on Facebook as Vibeke K. Ottersen. Uh, and I always, I always put out texts in in social media uh, to to you know spread spread the word because I think these perspectives are very important, uh, and I and, and I, I really hope to see more academics uh, joining and, uh, and 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 promoting working 
and finding new areas to take advantage of the incredible legacy left behind by Daly and Wilson and Dunkley and Buss and the Shacklefords and Anne Campbell and Sarah Blafahardy and all these incredible minds that I've had the great fortune to read outside of the curriculum. I was always having to study outside the curriculum. Um, and just hopefully one day these perspectives on curriculum also in countries like Norway. Yeah. Okay, so it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I promise I will watch more Norwegian movies. <laughs> no, don't. No, do not watch Norwegian movies. They are drug. They are awful. I don't watch Norwegian movies. So, okay. no. <laughs> well, any, anyway, don't be envious of Von Trier and Bergman because they are very depressive. So. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on your show. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now. And it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long and so... If you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Adriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardus France, and Niroban Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michelle Ruzieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.